Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 10. Last Sunday evening, I was uh, in the mood for some chocolate pudding dessert. I, uh, you know, after a, a long season of prayer, the Lord said that would be an acceptable thing. Either that or I was just jonesing on it all day long. And I got out the Betty Crocker cookbook, the old Betty Crocker that we have, and uh, got out the recipe for the chocolate pudding cake and making this cake. And, and I'm watching TV and talking to my wife and making this dessert. And, and, and I kept, I, I just had this nagging feeling that I'd left something out, that I'd left something out. And, and uh, but I thought, well, I think I got it all in there. And, you know, this is what it's supposed to look like when it's done. The uh, this this lovely, uh, you know, it's a miracle. It's one of those miracle cakes. It's a magic cake. You know, you you put the batter in the pan, then you put some sugar and cocoa and water on top, and during cooking, the the cake rises up and the pudding sinks down and makes an oh lord with a little bit of vanilla ice cream. Ow! <laughs> yes. And. Uh, you know, I try to uh, I try to use my, uh, my my nose when I'm cooking or baking. You can smell how things are doing, and I could smell that cooking. So I went and opened, I, or I, I turned the light on. I looked into the oven, and and I thought, oh my goodness, I left something out of that because, you know, halfway through the cake's kind of rising up and getting all nice on top, and and I looked in there and it was just all watery. It's just you know, it's like the Sea of Galilee in there, and I thought this is not right. And I went and. I went and looked at the cookbook, and I went, oh, shoot. I left out the baking powder. <laughs> so I just cooked it a little more and took it out and, and uh, attacked it with a spatula. Cake was all kind of tough and on the bottom, and the, and the pudding was just still all liquidy on the top. It was so bad, we had to throw most of it away. <laughs> yeah. There's no dessert that isn't edible, I tell you what, right now. <laughs> One missing ingredient ruined my cake. There's an ingredient in the Christian life that is absolutely vital. We're talking about some mistakes you can make in your Christian life uh, for these uh, three weeks here until school starts. And the mistake that I want to talk about today is this, substituting activity for dedication. Dedication is that element that if you leave it out of your Christian life, no matter what, you will ruin your walk with God. God wants a dedicated heart, first and foremost, and a life that comes up out of that. Please follow as I read from Matthew chapter 10. <clears throat> and when he had called the twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Levius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, do not go into the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In this first 
commission that Jesus gave his disciples, it was a unique time. It was going to be a miraculous time, and it was focused on the people of Israel. And so there are some elements of this address that he gives that don't apply to us today uh, in a direct sense, but as he gets on down through the instructions that he's going to give them, it, it becomes some timeless principles, one of which we're going to focus on. Verse 7, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his hire. It was going to be a completely miraculous time. Now, whatever city, verse 11, you enter, inquire who is worthy. Stay there till you go. And when you go into a house, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day than in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before the governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about what you will speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. If you're the apostles listening to this, are you getting excited? Are you thinking, whoa, what did we sign up for here? Verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant that he be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, or a demon, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. 
I read that extended portion so you would get the feel of what the disciples heard in that first commission. And so you'd get the context of these last two verses that we want to focus on today. Jesus gave broad power to these men as he sent them out to do miracles, to heal, to cast out demons, and so on. But he said, it's going to be tough. And I'm looking for people who have a singular dedication to me. Now, I don't have time to, obviously, to expound this whole passage. Does Jesus want you to hate your parents, to hate your children? No. He wants you to have a love for him that is so great that by comparison, that by comparison, your love for them is not that great. God wants us to care for our families. He wants us to be gracious. He wants us to be winsome. But he wants us to have a dedicated heart to him first and foremost. What does it mean to be dedicated to Christ? Well, for these men here, he said, you're going to go out and do my work, but people are going to oppose you, so you're going to have to choose who are you going to follow, your own inclination, the will of the people around you, or me. Jesus said it's not going to be easy being a cakewalk, but one of the greatest disservices that churches do today is to somehow communicate to people that Christianity is is just the, the ticket for bliss for the rest of your life without any challenges. Jesus said uh, he's going to bless us, but it's going to come through a lot of difficulty. There's several key concepts in this passage, but the one that I want to focus on is verse 38 and 39. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And let me paraphrase some of these verses together into this. Dedication would come out of Jesus' mouth like this. If you're going to truly follow me, you have to let go of your own desires for your life and invest yourself completely in my plans for your life. And those plans include just the daily stuff of life, as in telling the truth, as in caring for your neighbor, and it also involves the the bigger pictures of life, as in where am I going to live, what am I going to do, who am I going to marry, things like that. First and foremost, as Jesus sends out his disciples, he says, who's in charge of your life? Is it me or is it you? I worked in a retail store during some of my time in college, and the store was owned by a large corporation. They had multiple stores. And so at our store, we had a manager and an assistant manager, then a bunch of us uh, pawns in the chess game of life. And, and the manager was a guy who had been in this kind of business for a long time, and the uh, assistant manager was kind of aspiring to be the big dog. And, and the manager would say, uh, do this and this and this, and do it like this and this and this. And we'd go, yes, sir. And we'd go out and do our business. And when he was gone, or not looking, the assistant manager would say, who told you to do it like that? And we'd say, well, he did. So I don't care, I want you to do it like this and this and this, and that and that and that. And so we, okay, you're standing there telling us we're going to do it like that. Well, then the manager would come back and say, who told you to do it like that? And occasionally that was a problem. Because we didn't know who was the boss. Whoever was standing there was the boss. 
The first question on the evaluation of your dedication to God is quite simple. Who is the boss of your life? Who is in control of your life? Who decides how you live? When you get up in the morning, who guides the decisions of of the, the stream of your life? When you have a decision to make it work, who gets to who gets to determine how that decision is made? When you have a decision to make about relationships or you're trying to figure out how to act, who decides how you're going to act? Who provides the goals toward which you are working? Whose priorities guide your spending? Who controls the words coming out of your mouth? Whose wisdom do you consult when you don't know what to do? Dedication is as simple as saying Christ is on the throne of my life. If this is the throne of my life, if this is where the king sits, dedication means it looks like this. Everything else looks like this. And and that is both a big decision and a lot of little decisions. It is a big decision when we say, yes, I want you to run my life. I want you to be the Lord. Do you know that's what the word Lord means? Savior means the one who died to pay for our sins. Lord means the one who is the master. And so the question we have to ask is, am I the Lord or is he the Lord? Is he sitting in the big chair or am I sitting in the big chair? The lordship of Christ is first and foremost the evidence of salvation. Look at verse 37 of what Jesus said. He who loves... Let me paraphrase it, and I think this is a just paraphrase based on all of the New Testament. He who loves anybody else more than me. It's not just father or mother, but it's anybody. Jesus used father and mother in that culture to indicate those who would be the closest and you would never put on second base. In our culture, we're all about number one right here. And if if Jesus came to America, he'd say... He who loves himself more than me. But here's the scary phrase. Is not worthy of me. Is not worthy of me. The Lordship of Christ is the evidence of dedication. Is the evidence of dedication. Are you walking with the Lord? Then he is on the throne of your life. Listen to how Luke recorded these words. Now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them. You see that great multitude? He's getting a crowd. And what does he do? Does he sign them all up? No, he drives them away. If anybody comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, the reason I've quoted Luke here for you is this. Luke, makes it, Luke essentially defines bearing the cross. Bearing the cross means forsaking yourself, forsaking your own stuff. This is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul wrote this verse. Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you? 
you see the 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 the, the uh, subtle often not on purpose trap that we fall into as Christians is activity. I am busy for the Lord, busy, busy. When the church doors are open, I am there. Lord bless you, we need you. But you know what? We don't want you to be busy before you are dedicated. The Lordship of Christ is the evidence of dedication. The Lordship of Christ is also the evidence of salvation. Is he your Lord and Savior, or are you counting on him, or it's, it's a test of salvation, excuse me, are you counting on him to keep you out of hell, but stay out of your way during this life? Oh, yes, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven, but today I've got a different agenda. According to what I've been reading here in Matthew and Luke, you might be sadly mistaken someday. Doesn't give me any pleasure to say that. It gives me pleasure, though, to challenge you to examine yourself, to see if you are in the faith. If you are sitting in the chair and Christ is somewhere over here in your life, you need to take a real hard look and say, what kind of faith in Christ do I have? What is it I am believing? What is it I am thinking? Am I thinking that my attendance at church somehow gets me merit with God and I can live the way I want as long as I show up? Activity never takes the place of dedication. The Lordship of Christ is a test of salvation. It's also the means of blessing. And, and, and if, I could, if I could put it this way, I believe that what Jesus asks of us when he asks us to, to let him sit on the throne, to make sure he's there and we follow him, that's a sacrifice. We have to let go of our own desires, you know, lose your life, take up your cross. That's not easy. And I find in the scripture that God seems to give us a promise or a blessing to go with every sacrifice that he asks of us. And here's the summary blessing that comes through lordship, or through, through the lordship of Christ. I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Abundant life, what is it, what is abundant life? I think this is sort of a, kind of a summary blessing that Jesus pronounced. I think some of the individual parts of it look like this. If we believe in Christ, we're on our way to heaven. Isn't that a great thing? <laughs> Have you ever sat with somebody on their way to hell in the last moments of their life? Have you ever sat with their relatives whose dear departed loved one is gone off into the great beyond? Have you ever listened to the wailing? heard the platitudes, oh, they're up there somewhere, and seen the lack of confidence. Christian, I don't know if you take going to heaven for granted, but you should not. It is a great confidence. 
It is a great confidence. And if nothing else, if that's all God gave to us, it would be enough to merit our walking with him. But he gives more. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain with you and that your joy may be full. One of the great decisions we have to make in dedication is this. Is my path to joy better than God's path to joy? Because God's path to joy involves sacrifice. You know, our society is telling us a number of things ought to be involved in the joy of your life. Uh, Some of them have recently become legal. And yet God says, no, here is the way to have joy. And it's a great challenge. But when we sacrifice the stuff that we think is going to be good and invest ourselves in God's life, joy comes from him. Not just joy, but peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not like the world gives. Wow. I... Forgive me for using you two as an example again, but, um, you know, um, Cindy, was, Cindy was on the brink. Cindy had one foot on the banana peel, headed to be with the Lord. I, I heard, and, 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 and joyful, and, and at peace. Uh, you know, Chuck wasn't happy. Don't get me wrong. But at peace. Some, 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 some of our guests over here today that are related to some of our folks were just telling us a story about some, some young children, sons of the pastor, right? There was, a, there was a, huge, a tremendous flood a few years ago in Rapid City, South Dakota, and, and they hung on for dear life. I mean, it was kind of a flash flood thing, and they hung on for dear life as long as they could, and they knew they were going to drown. <laughs> and they said to their father, I'll see you in heaven. What's that worth? Well, that kind of peace, that kind of confidence, that the Lordship of Christ is the means for blessing. We have got to get it through our head that God's path is the best path, the only path of joy and peace. God refers to the pleasure of sin this way. There is a pleasure of sin for a season or for a time. The stuff of sin will make you feel good briefly. The stuff of Christ makes you feel good on and on. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. So what will it be? Salvation and blessing or damnation and a life of wandering and wandering. Abundant life is what Christ offers us. But the only But the abundant life only comes when we bow before him, when we let him be the king in our life as he should be. Well, I've already been talking about the motivation for dedication, but I want to talk about it a little bit more. Romans 12, 1, uh, tremendous verse you ought to memorize if you never have. I beseech you or I beg you, I'm, I'm, I'm just putting it all out there, asking you, brethren, According to the mercies of God, would you please present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now think with me just a minute about what the mercies of God are. And to do this, we're going to go all the way back to Adam and Eve. When God talked to Adam and Eve, he said, now you can do this and this and this. There's all this wide expanse for you, but there's one tree. You see that tree right there? Do not eat that fruit. 
Because if you eat that fruit, in that day, dying, you will die. God told them clearly. He gave them great opportunity. Satan came along and whispered in Eve's ear. Eve ate the fruit. She went and whispered in her husband's ear. He ate the fruit. And God had said, if you eat that fruit, you're going to die. And what happened after they ate that fruit? What did God do? Did he come in and strike them dead? Would it have been fair? Would it have been just? Yes, it would. Was it what they deserved? Yes, it was. But what did God do? He was merciful. He, slay, he, he killed an animal and he took the skin and covered them. And that was a, a, a foreshadowing, a picture of what would come in Christ dying on the cross to take care of our sins. God mercifully provided for their salvation. The Apostle Paul is referring to this whole idea of mercy going all the way back to Adam and forward to us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me ask you a silly question. Were you a sinner before you accepted Christ as your Savior? Do you ever forget that? Do you ever forget I was a sinner on my way to hell? What did we deserve? The wages of sin is death. That is what we deserved. We don't deserve heaven. I'm afraid, again, that American, modern American Christianity has somehow told us that these are, these are our rights, these are things we have coming, I don't know, but we forget the fact that what we deserve is to die and go to hell, but what did God do? God gave us the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what does God require in order for us to receive that gift? By grace, by a gift, you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so the whole, the whole concept of salvation is about mercy and it's about grace. And Paul says, based on the mercy and grace of God, you should dedicate your life to serving God. And he calls it in Romans 12, 1, a reasonable response. A reasonable response. Could there be a price too high for God to ask in return from protecting us from hell and giving us eternity in heaven? Could there be a price too high? Uh, you know, I, I, I took my wife's car to the uh, Les Schwab a couple of weeks ago, and we said, it's making a noise like this, and it does like that, and they looked at it and said, it'll cost you 257 bucks to fix that. I said, do it. Can't get it done quick enough, so I don't hear about it anymore, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Honestly, if they'd have told me it cost 500 bucks, I would have said, mm, okay, do it. It would have taken me that much longer to decide, because I want that thing done, and I know I can't fix it. If God came to you and said, here's the deal, you're not going to have to go to hell, and I am going to take you to heaven, but I want you to crawl on your knees for the next five years. You know what? There's people in the world who would rather do that than believe. 
There's people in the world who at certain times of years will take a whip and beat themselves and bloody themselves trying to earn God's favor. And God said, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to believe in Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He died for you. I want you to believe that you are a sinner and you cannot contribute to your salvation. He's given us the priceless gift for free. And the Apostle Paul says... What you should do in reflection on that priceless gift at a free price is dedicate your life to him. He asks us to dedicate our whole life and he gives us abundant life. He takes away our broken, hopeless, meaningless, uncertain, sinful existence and gives us joy and peace and wisdom for life along with the ability to make an eternal difference in the lives of others. And that's not fair, it's gracious. So how do we walk in dedication? If we come to the point where we understand God wants me to be dedicated, and I have, I have come and said, yes, it is a reasonable gift it is a reasonable request based on the great gift. How do I do it? What does it mean to be a dedicated Christian? It means that I give attention first and foremost to maintaining right relationship with God before doing religious activity. Now I know we don't use the word religious around here a lot because it has negative connotations. I've used that as a, as a summary of all of the stuff you might do for God. All the stuff that's good stuff. You've come today, you've sung, you've prayed, perhaps you gave, you're here to listen to God's word, uh, perhaps you will fellowship and encourage others as you leave, um, you know, there were men here working on the building last week, uh, people here serving in all kinds of ways, all of that stuff is the religious activity that I'm talking about. A dedicated Christian maintains right relationship with God before religious activity, uh, King David, King David figured this out. You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. That was the prime religious activity of his day. Taking an animal to the temple and offering it as a payment for sin or offering it as sacrifice, that type of thing. You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Right relationship has to come before religious activity. No amount of religious activity replaces a righteous heart. Sometimes we, we, we get the idea that God is using a scale in heaven and um, we're, we're loading in activities. And we think he's going to look at that and say, well, you're, you're a great Christian. When in reality, what he wants is a dedicated heart first and foremost. This is what the Pharisees tried to do. The, Jesus, here he's criticizing the Pharisees, the, the very religious people of his day. He said, you lay aside the commandment of God and you hold the tradition of men instead of it. The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. 
He said, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Nobody was busier doing religious things than a Pharisee. But the problem was they had, they had said, well, here's God's stuff, and they made other rules that supposedly, if you follow these rules, it helped you keep those rules. But in the end, they were attached to their own rules, and they, in essence, were not following God's truth. And Jesus said, what in the world kind of believer in God sets aside God's way and follows their own way? Even though it was very religious, it was very busy. We've got to maintain a right relationship with God, which, as David wrote in the psalm, is based on openness, confession, you know, here I am, God. Is there something that needs to change? Is there something that's not right? Um, I'm, I'm here open before you. I'm looking in your word. I'm learning the things you want for me. I confess when I don't do them. I, I aspire to do the ones that I should be doing. I am working on my heart relationship first and foremost. You I don't want to create a legalistic standard, and I know Chet doesn't either. Chet's been talking about praying, about spending significant time in prayer, and he's talking about in Sunday school, and, and he's saying, you know, you need to get up in the morning and just kind of get yourself focused on the Lord, and, and neither he nor I would want you to have a legalistic standard, again, a busyness, whereby you say, well, I've done this thing, so I must be good with God. But I would say to you that one of the values of starting the day with God is to just get your heart right with God before you do anything. You don't get up saying, well, I must do this, do this, do this, do this. You get up saying, here I am, God. It's you and me and your word. And you read and you pray and you consider your life, you apply God's word, you plan to live God's word. You, you, you set your heart for him and then you go out to do things because then it, it prepares you to do them the way God wants them done. It prepares you to prioritize the way God wants them prioritized and perhaps it even prepares you to say, you know what, I shouldn't even be doing that one. Not that it's wrong, but it's just not in God's plan for me. I gotta, I've got work to do over here. Maintaining right relationship before religious activity. Number two, maintaining a priority on knowing God. Knowing God before serving God, before doing with God. Uh, you're familiar with this story if you've read your Bible very much. Now it happened as, as they, that's Jesus and the disciples, as they were walking around, uh, that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Uh, in that day, um, the teacher was honored by sitting, and everybody else would sit on the floor or stand, and the, to, to be the seated teacher was the place of honor. And so he came into the house, and, and they gave him the best seat, and he sat down, and Mary sat literally at his feet, going, I'm ready, man, give, give me what you got. <laughs> but Martha was distracted, with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? I am so busy, Lord, and nobody will help me. Therefore, tell her to help me. <laughs> How bold is that? Jesus, come on. 
she's failing me and you're failing me too because you should be getting after her. And Jesus answered and said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is important, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Now, if you were there, would you be sitting at the feet or making dinner? Man, don't raise your hand. I just want you to think for a minute. Now, most of us, if we have any semblance of trying to gain the approval of others, would say, oh, I'd be sitting at the feet of Jesus. I hope that's what you'd say. But if that's what you would have done then, how much effort are you giving to it now? You can sit at the feet of Jesus now. Okay? Um, I certainly would not compare myself to Jesus, but we're here talking about Jesus. And we have the opportunity to, to sit at the feet of Jesus by learning the word, by praying, by talking to him. And so there needs to be a priority on knowing God, on, on connecting with him. On, and, and then out of that, other things come. How do we practice dedication? Number three, by making certain that service is based in gratitude. We already talked about that from Romans 12. But listen to this verse, these verses, particularly on giving, and, and I don't intend to emphasize giving any more than any other spiritual grace today, but listen to this. The, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthians about some people basically over in Greece or Macedonia, and he said those people in Greece implored us with much urgency, they were hot to go, that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. It was an offering for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. They implored us with much urgency to take the gift for the, for the saints. And not as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. I think what Paul means is he was just hoping for an offering. I know that sounds a little crass, but it wasn't for him, it was for others. He was saying, they said they would give, I hope they will give because these people really need it. But he says, you know what? They gave themselves to the Lord, then they gave their offering. That's the way our service needs to be. It needs to be based in gratitude and dedication. What this tells us is, these Christians in Macedonia were not trying to get leverage with God. They weren't given this offering so they could say, okay, God, I gave an offering, now you give back to me. They were not trying to get praise from Paul or the Corinthians or the starving believers. Can you imagine how this would go today? Well, I just don't know. They didn't even send a thank you note. You know, that was a pretty big gift we sent, and they didn't even send a thank you note. You know, next time they have a need, I might just have to think twice about giving. No, you would never be that way. And they weren't that way because they just said, Lord, it's your money and it's your people that are in need and so they just gave. That's all they cared about. They did not give because they were afraid their church friends would look down their nose for not giving. They did not give because it was their turn. Well, you know, everybody else gave so I guess we ought to do it too. They gave because they loved the Lord who saved them for all eternity. A dedicated heart does give. It does serve. It is busy for God. 
because it appreciates God. It appreciates God. That's where our busyness needs to come from. Number four, in the practice of dedication, we need to practice keeping our life on God's altar. You know what the difference between an animal sacrifice in the Old Testament era and a believer today is? The believer can crawl off the altar. Now, when you brought a sheep or a goat or a pigeon or whatever you would bring to the Old Testament temple, you gave it to the, the Levites who did a lot of the work and then the priest would take the blood from there. But in between all of that, the animal died. The animal didn't say, uh, excuse me, I really liked it down there at the farm. I'm going to go back. Okay? But Christians, Christians can choose. Which way is it going to be? This way today? This way tomorrow? This way today? This way tomorrow? When the Apostle Paul said in Romans 12:1, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What he was saying is, uh, if this was the altar, he says, you get up there on the altar and you die to self. Now you serve out of that death, but you stay dead. We have to stay on the altar. That's why dedication is a regular, regular, regular decision. One of the challenges of summer camp is that you go to camp and it's all, it's majority Christians and, and you're in chapel twice every day and you're having devotions with your cabin and it's a wonderful Christian and they refer to it this way as the bubble, the mountaintop, the bubble on the mountaintop and it's a wonderful thing and kids make decisions for the Lord and then they come back and live in your house and it ain't quite as bubblicious. That's hard. I did that. I dedicated my life to the Lord every year I went to camp. But I did not come back home and live in dedication. The dedicated life is a transformed and transforming life. It's lived one decision at a time. Every time we're tempted to say, oh, we need to go, no. No, no to self, yes to Christ. No to self, yes to Christ. The dedicated life is not one decision that somehow miraculously changes us to where we never want to sit on the chair again. It is a life in which we say, my life is for Christ. And then the next time I'm tempted to get in the chair and do my own thing, I say no. And I say yes to righteousness. And the good news is this. The more you live in sacrificial dedication, the more normal that way of life becomes. New habits are formed. Godly patterns make those hourly decisions easier. Temptation will never go away. The opportunity to go in the wrong direction will always be there. But the dedicated life is lived one decision at a time. We had a great dog in Tukwila named Raisin. 
he was a long-haired Sharpe, so he had the wrinkly skin, so raisin seemed to fit that. One time when we were gone, I believe he, he slipped out of his confinement. Uh, he had some kind of a, a rope or a, a, you know, a chain, I don't know what it was, and uh, he got out of it. And we drove all around looking for him, and we really did not expect to find him alive. And at some point, I believe a, a friend of our kids or us said, hey, I think I saw your dog up so-and-so, you know, two, three miles away up, you know, we, we were in an urban area. And so we said, okay, so we got in the van and, and drove up there, and sure enough, there he was trotting down the road, and, and, and we, we opened the door of the van and hollered for him, and he looked at us like, oh man, I'm glad to see you guys. Yeah, why'd you run away in the first place, you idiot? Isn't that what we do? We run away. And Christ comes and says, come on, come on, come on. The mature believer stops running away. We just stop it. Why in the world would you want to run from God? He is the hand that feeds your soul. Why offer him something other than what he wants? If you've been hanging on to your heart, and giving God something else instead of your heart, would you use the time while I sing a song today, would you use that time to just give it back to him? Whatever that thing is that, that's, that you don't want to let go, would you just let go of it today and just, just take a moment to, to just say, God, I've got to put you on the throne. I've got to walk with you. Please help me to do it as I go out and make decisions one by one today. Standing at my window, hidden by the night, harboring the private wounds, safe and out of sight. There's an agony in living, but there's a comfort in the truth. No one knows my heart better than you. I can face a lot of people with this sanguine act of mine Guarded by the eloquence I sometimes hide behind But it's a veil of false pretenses that you can see right through Cause no one knows my heart better than you Part of me is reaching And part of me holds back But when it comes to you I am a door you can walk through No one knows my heart like you
Part of me is reaching and part of me holds back but when it comes to you I am a doorway you can walk into cause no one knows my heart better than you There's an agony in living, but there's a comfort in the truth. No one knows my heart. No, no one knows my heart. No one knows my heart better than you. No, no, no one better than you. Heavenly Father, we're so glad that you know us and yet you love us. You don't reject our sin, our sinful ways. You don't reject us when we act in our sinful ways. You convict us and you draw us back. You open the door and say, come on, get in here. Father, help us to stop running away. Father, speak to your children today. Father, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, they've really been just running straight out away from you. Help them to see they got nothing to fear and everything to gain through your forgiveness and your blessing. I pray in Christ's name, amen.